Well, how many of you took note that yesterday was the shortest day of the year? Yeah, 8, 19 p.m. apparently. That was the winter solstice. So I always look forward to that moment because that is the shortest, and then I know it is not going to get any darker. It's just going to get brighter each day. So that's good news. But even better news is what we're going to read in the scriptures today. We're in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. If you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 573. So, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Some of the words in this text you have heard many times. They're often written on Christmas cards. They're sung in Christmas carols. Uh, In the Western world, uh, George Friedrich Handel's Messiah has immortalized some of the words, for unto us a son is given. Uh, Sorry, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And so even as I say those words, maybe you begin to sing them. But when we go back to the time when these words were first prophesied, the people of Israel and Judah, they were not singing. They were in the depths of despair, the gloom of anguish. They cursed God. They cursed their king. There was no light of dawn. When these words were first prophesied by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah, the most powerful nation on earth, the superpower Assyria, was on the doorstep of Israel and Judah. And Israel and Judah were no match Not only was there an external threat, but there was internal degeneration. The people of Israel, in their crisis, they had abandoned the living God who was among them. And they had turned to foreign gods. They were consulting the dead through mediums. They were enshrouded in spiritual darkness. They refused to listen. At least the overwhelming majority refused to listen to the word of God through Isaiah. What's it like in Canada today? John Stackhouse, professor of theology and culture at Regent, he writes this in an article in Maclean's. The vast majority of Canadians have become less enthusiastic, indifferent, or even hostile to Christianity. A recent uh, survey reveals the, the following. In 1996, 12% of Canadians self-identified as evangelical. In 2015, 9% self-identified as evangelical. And today, in 2019, 
the percentage is down to six. Six percent of Canadians across the nation self-identify as evangelical. And in Metro Vancouver, the percentage would be even less. So, an interesting, changing spiritual landscape. At the same time, we read this about Canadian spirituality. Uh, Article in the Maclean's again in 2015, what Canadians really believe, a surprising poll, I'll quote it. However polarized we, we may be on certain questions, there are some surprising beliefs shared by many Canadians. The percentage of people who believe it's possible to communicate with the dead has doubled over the past three decades, up 42%. The share of people who believe that Jesus was the divine Son of God has steadily gone down, but more people believe they will be reincarnated, up to one-third of Canadians. More than half of Canadians believe some people have psychic powers. The one constant in the survey has been a belief in angels rooted in pop culture. So if that is even remotely true, what's happening in Canada today is that we, were, we are abandoning what we knew of Christianity and we are embracing a new spiritual paganism. And if we are, then we will find ourselves increasingly surrounded by a culture of despair. So what was the message of God for the people of Isaiah's day? What would the word of God be for us today? Going back to verse 1 of chapter 9. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. God's word, it projects into the future. When the Assyrian army invaded Israel, it invaded from the north. And so the first tribal regions to be impacted were Zebulun and Naphtali. They were devastated. They were depopulated. They were wiped out. They were brought into contempt, as the text says. But the text also says, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Again, by the Spirit of God, Isaiah sees into the future. He sees this glorious reversal happening by God's grace, in Zebulun and Naphtali. These tribal regions would be the first to witness a new glorious area, light dawning on their darkness. Why such audacious hope? Well, verse 6, a son will be given. Again, the language projects into the future. There's going to be a day when a child will be given, a particular child. Who is that child? Well, look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested... He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles." God's response to the oppression, to the hostility of the nations, God's response to the tyranny of political leaders who swagger their way through history, his answer to all of us is a child born. That's his answer to Israel and to all of humanity. Jesus is the promised child. Jesus is God's gift to us. He is Emmanuel. God with us, God becoming one of us. This is God's resounding message of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And, verse 6, the government shall be 
upon his shoulder. What does that language mean? Well, in the Middle East, the symbol of royal office, it was worn on the shoulder. And so Jesus is assuming responsibility for governance. The governance is on his shoulder. He is the one who is reigning. We read on in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. We need to remember God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises to David that his throne will never end. His empire will not come to a close. What does God mean by that? A thousand years after 2 Samuel is written, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary with these words. This is Luke chapter 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So the reign of the child will never end. His kingdom ever expanding. The child given for all peoples will reign over history for all of time. Jesus is the universal king. Now, when we think about the Christmas season, quite often the first thing that comes to mind is this beautiful nativity scene, right? And we get warm inside, a little, you know, sentimental. Uh, these days, um, Pastor James, his son is, is Carter. And uh, Carter was thinking about Christmas, and he said to Pastor James, Dad, this Christmas, Jesus is a baby. Last Christmas, Jesus was a baby. <laughs> is Jesus always a baby? Pastor James was stumped, so he called me. <laughs> no. <laughs> but for some, Jesus is always that sweet little baby in a manger. And yes, he did come as a child. He was born to us. He did become one of us. But Jesus is not just a baby in a manger. He is the universal king, God's gift to us. He's the wonderful counselor. That language there, wonderful counselor, it means the wonder-working planner. Uh, that word wonder, it's the word that's used for the wonders of Egypt. So God parting the Red Sea, for example, or God going before the people of Israel in a cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night. Jesus is the one who works wonders. And he not only works wonders, he is a wonder. He doesn't have any need for spiritual advisors, for counselors, for gurus around him. No. What does Isaiah prophesy about him? Isaiah chapter 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Jesus, wonderful counselor, wonder-working planner. That name, it just reveals his healing presence. Where Jesus is present, there's strength, there's wisdom, there's clarity, there's comfort. How amazing to have Jesus present in our lives as our wonderful counselor, Isaiah. He prophesied these words into the future, but if we are followers of Jesus, then they talk about a current reality, what is true for us now. Jesus is the wonder-working planner. And then, mighty God, literally god Warrior Again, in Hebrew, these words, they echo Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus is present in our lives to fight for us. We don't face the difficulties of life on our own. Jesus is with us 
to fight for us. And when he begins his ministry, of course, he announces the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and demons are expelled and people are restored. And then he goes to the cross and dies and takes our sin upon himself on that cross outside of Jerusalem. And because of what he has done, the powers of sin, death, and the evil one are defeated. He's exalted to the Father's right hand and he reigns forevermore, overcoming the world. Jesus is the God warrior. And so again, those words prophesied into the future, but if we are in Jesus today, then for us they are a present reality. Not just a child in a manger, the God warrior. And then everlasting Father. Why would the text call Jesus Father? Well, when Jesus is referred to as the everlasting Father, he's not being uh, referred to as God the Father. No, this term, it, was, it described the quality of kingship in the Middle East. And so a king was to be father-like, a protector, to be good. He was to care for his people. The king described here, he's not just good, he's eternal. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Lord of history. In Isaiah's day, there was a tremendous leadership crisis. And isn't there one in our day as well? Just think about what's happening around the world today. Uh, again, the most recent issue of McLean's, Terry Galvin writes an article and he says that we see a confounding global upheaval because governments are facing a crisis of legitimacy. And so in recent weeks and months, millions of people marching around the world, facing riot police in Hong Kong, Quito, La Paz, Santiago, Caracas, Moscow, Beirut, Algiers, Khartoum, Karachi, Baghdad, Tehran, New Delhi. That's the short list. A crisis of legitimacy. People don't believe that governments are actually good. They don't believe that their governments can be trusted. And into this crisis of legitimacy, the words of Isaiah were spoken, prophesied by the Spirit of God that Jesus is the everlasting Father. He is the good, Father-like King, and He never changes. He will not turn on us. If we're in Him, then we rest secure in Him, and His strong hand is on us, and nothing can separate us from His love. So Jesus is the good, fatherly King. And then Prince of Peace. That word prince, it refers to an army commander that's conquering territory. The word peace is shalom. It's a really rich word. It refers to wholeness. There's justice and righteousness. It's the things that have been separating, being put together. Things being made right. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, the text says. So how is that possible? How can this eternal kingdom be extended through peace? Well, the Prince of Peace, he embodies shalom. Paul writes, he, Jesus, he himself is our peace. And so if Jesus is governing in my life or in your life, then the peace of God resides within us. That peace that surpasses all understanding. Jesus is the king who embodies peace. Heard a testimony this week at one of the banquets of a person that was uh, suffering from cancer. So on this journey, and of course if you have had cancer, there are many unknowns, but the person was just talking about how he has ex experienced peace from the diagnosis to this day and how God has been orchestrating things around his treatment and leading him and his wife. God present in real life in the midst of crisis. 
What happens when God's gift to us, the wonder-working planner, the God-warrior, the good fatherly king, the prince of peace, reigns in our lives? Well, verse 2, then the people who walked in darkness see a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light shines. Those who walk in the gloom of anguish, on them the light of Christ shines. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Will have it. Will have the light of life within them by the Holy Spirit. The light of life replacing the darkness. The light of knowledge replacing the darkness of ignorance. When Jesus, the King, enters our lives, light dispels darkness. And then Isaiah continues, if this were not enough, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Because of Jesus, there's a joy-filled harvest being brought in from around the world, from all nations. 700 years after, after these words were penned, the angel appears to the shepherds and says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which that shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, the Savior, dies on a cross outside of Jerusalem, takes the sin of the world upon himself so that God in perfect justice might forgive sinners like us, that we might be reconciled with God. Later, Peter writes to his disciples, you who are in Jesus, you're filled with an inexpressible joy, an abundance of joy. It goes beyond words. Those who surrender their lives to Jesus have every reason to sing. And that's why last weekend at our Christmas concerts that we could sing for an hour and a half. And if they had given us more time, we would have continued to sing because we have every reason to sing. Joy in the place of gloom. So when Jesus the King enters our lives, joy replaces the gloom. The gloom. Why the abundance of joy? In the following verses, there's a threefold four, four, F-O-R. Verse four, verse five, and verse six, they all begin with four. Verse four, four, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on, as on the day of Midian. As on the day of Midian, that refers back to the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. The people of Midian are oppressing the people of Israel. They're in fear. They're living in dens and caves in the mountains. And God raises up Gideon. And then with 300 men against all odds, by the power of God, there's a tremendous victory. In Isaiah's day as well, the, the oppression, it was tangible. The greatest superpower is Syria on the doorstep. External threat. Internal threat because people have abandoned God. They're living the darkness of departure from God's ways. It's felt in the nation. How will God deliver his people? Well, a son will be given who will set men and women free. So when Jesus is in Nazareth, he gets up to read the scriptures in a synagogue and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61 and he applies the word to himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus triumphs over the powers of sin, death, and the evil one. 
Paul exalts, for freedom Christ has set us free. So when Jesus the King enters our lives, he frees us of bondage. Whether the bondage be mental, emotional, spiritual, Jesus is present to set us free. And then a second for, a second reason for abundant joy. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The picture is of battle clothing being burned because it's no longer necessary. When Jesus is present, the boots of war are replaced by the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Where Jesus reigns, swords are being beaten into plowshares. Spears are being beaten into pruning hooks. Why? Because they're no longer needed for war. Nations no longer learn war. When Jesus the King enters our lives, peace replaces the strife. We join the angels who sang on the day of Jesus' birth, glory to God on the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or the King James translation, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We join that song Again, going to a number of banquets here this last week. So encouraging to hear the testimonies of people that have come to faith just over the last one or two years. One person said that, you know, for 20 years I took medication to sleep. And then I surrendered my life to Jesus. And now I experience peace and I sleep. No more medicine. Another person living in despair, depressed, suddenly filled with joy. Because of Jesus. Another person who couldn't find any reason to live. But now in Jesus, her life filled with meaning. That's what happens when people come under the governance of Jesus. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Now, in Isaiah's day, was there any sign of hope at all? If you read through the book of Isaiah, you see that the people of Israel and Judah are not listening to the word of God being prophesied through him. But there was a sign of hope. If you go to chapter 8, there are disciples of Isaiah who receive the word of God. They value it. They treasure it. They treasure the presence of God among them. They're a prophetic presence of a different way of people who know God and actually follow his ways. And so the question I have for myself and for you is this. Could, it, could we be that faithful remnant in our day? Could we live with audacious hope in our day in Canada? Even though the number of atheists may be growing in our day, even though some churches may be closing and being turned into condominiums or shopping centers or whatever, in that kind of a Canada, can we live with audacious hope? I think it's important to take note of another survey that was just done recently, a recent study conducted by two academics in Canada, David Haskell and Kevin Flatt. It reveals this. Those churches that believe in the authority and testimony of the word of God They actually believe that God works visibly in the world today. They believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They preach the good news of Jesus Christ. They believe that God answers prayer. These churches continue to grow. So sometimes we read articles about the larger church in Canada, about nominal Christianity, people who have been a part of the Christian faith because they were kind of born into it. And that church is diminishing in Canada, without a doubt. But 
the church of Jesus Christ that actually believes the word of God, that believes that Jesus is the way of the truth and the life, that proclaims the gospel, that prays and believes that God answers prayer, that church is growing. And so this is not a day for gloom in the valley of despair. It's not a day to be hiding in a closet. It's a day to proclaim the gospel boldly, confidently, with humility, with grace. I was encouraged by some of the people I talked to who had come from other religious backgrounds who came to the Christmas concert and uh, their response was, so that's who Jesus is. So that's who Jesus is. You see, if you aren't a part of a church that proclaims the gospel, then in our society today, you're going to hear a very confusing message. You probably won't hear anything about Jesus in relation to Christmas. You'll just think it's a holiday season and there's some red and green around. Some trees being set up with lights. One movie critic, last weekend, this was a national TV network here in Canada, a movie critic, critic, he said this, as a society, we have moved beyond the traditional Christmas story. We are writing a new story. And my question was, what story are you writing? How are you going to replace what God has done in history through Jesus Christ? What kind of story are you going to write that will actually offer people substantive hope, peace, love, salvation? What are you going to write? And so because people are thinking in that way in our day, we need to live with an audacious hope and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ so that those around us might hear the good news. Amen? This is not a day for despair. Jesus is God's good, good gift to us, great gift to us. He is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. And when he reigns in our hearts, when the government of our lives rests upon his shoulders, the light of the way, the truth, and the life, it shines in our darkness. The power of God triumphs over sin, death, and the evil one. The inexpressible joy of Jesus, it saves us from the valley of despair. No matter what the circumstance, the peace of the Spirit of God, it fills our hearts and our minds, no matter what our circumstance. Hallelujah. And what really encourages me this morning is not my passion, but God's passion. Look at the way this text ends, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So God is passionate about the salvation of all people. He is committed to it. It's the story that he is writing. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. And because that is God's action, God's passion, God's resolve, it will be done because he keeps his word. Amen? So we have every reason to be filled with joy, with hope, to allow the light of Jesus to shine in our lives and pass that on to every person we meet this Christmas season. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So we're thankful for the word of God revealed to Isaiah centuries ago. And 
If you have never had the joy of actually just surrendering your life to the, to the governance of Jesus, the leadership of Jesus, receiving Jesus as your Savior, uh, inviting Jesus into your life so that his joy might replace your gloom and his peace might replace whatever discord or strife you might experience, Jesus invites you to know him. This is Jesus inviting you. It's personal. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows your story. And he wants to be your savior, your friend. You can pray this prayer with me if that's your desire. And we'd love to talk to you after, whether it be in the Welcome Center or here at the front. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. And now just a a prayer for all of us that are disciples. Father, I pray that what we read today in Isaiah, your word, that it would go deep into our souls, that it would not just be language that we use or something that we sing, but it would truly be the truth for us. And that it would change, Father, the way we see you, the way we see Jesus, the way we walk in the Spirit. May we surrender ourselves completely to your leadership, Jesus, to your governance, and allow your joy to replace our gloom, your light to shine in our darkness, your peace to invade our souls and replace whatever pain, strife we experience. May we open ourselves completely to all that you have for us. And may we share with others boldly, confidently, joyfully of what we have received in you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, and we pray that your grace and the love of your Father and the fellowship of your Spirit would be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas.